Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Welcome to the guests who've joined us today. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word this morning. Ask for His help. God, we thank you and we praise you for your word because it is the truth and we ask and pray, God, that your spirit would continue to be at work now as we open up the pages of scripture. Lord, we confess that we need your help. Apart from your spirit, no good will come. And so we ask and pray that your spirit would move, God, that you'd speak through your word to each one of us. God, that you'd bring the change in our lives, the encouragement, the growth where it's needed. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, those readings are a great summary of where we're going today. Uh, The last one was talking about how faithful shepherds protect their sheep from wolves who threaten them. And part of a pastor's job is to stand against false teaching. That's why um, we're called as pastors to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. That's part of how we protect the sheep. And that's what Peter is doing in this letter. We saw in 1 Peter that he's a pastor. Uh, he says that of himself in chapter 5. And he, he's responding to the false teachers in, uh, in 2 Peter, but in chapter 2 he responds with intensity because these false teachers are hurting God's people. Now, we have to remember that the... The best defense against false teaching is to hold fast to Christ and his word, to, to know and trust and have faith in the truth. That's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. But there is also a place for refuting false doctrine. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 to 22. The message for us this morning is repudiate false teaching. Refute it and reject it. Why? Because it's everywhere and it's dangerous, and we are all susceptible to it to varying degrees. We're going to look at the character and the consequences of false teachers this morning, and I'll try to draw some parallels to our own day as we go along through our text. So first, let's look at the the wicked character of false teachers. Peter uh, gives a graphic description that, of them in verses 10 through 16. Now, he just finished, what we saw last week, is he just finished teaching that the false teachers are not going to escape God's judgment. And now he gives us three reasons why. Their arrogance, sensuality, and greed. So first we see their arrogance in verses 10 through 13. And first, because they blaspheme supernatural beings. Look at verses 10 through 11. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. The glorious ones refer to fallen angels here, demons. They're called glorious ones because, and only because, they're supernatural beings. They're above humans. Now, the main reason for this interpretation comes from the parallel passage in Jude 8 through 10. Jude says of the false teachers almost exactly the same thing. He says, they blaspheme the glorious ones, but when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So not even good angels 
are willing to blaspheme or revile demons, they leave the judgment to God. But the false teachers lacked such humility. Now, Peter doesn't tell us exactly what they were saying. We know that they were living in sensuality. That much is clear. It could be that the false teachers were mocking the possibility that their sinful lifestyle would expose them uh, to the influence of demons. Uh, Or more likely, I think, we know from the larger context that the false teachers were denying Christ's return and future judgment. We're going to see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 next week. And so perhaps they thought that they would not share their fate, that they would somehow escape. But like demons, Peter says that the false teachers would also be cast into the gloom of utter darkness. Verse 4, verse 17. Whatever they were saying, what's plain is that they were flaunting demons in some way treating them with contempt. They were making arrogant assertions of some kind without proper trembling or proper understanding. Now, we shouldn't fear demons, but neither should we flaunt them. We shouldn't be preoccupied with them or afraid of the devil and his demons. The devil is not behind everything that happens. Uh, Not everything is caused by demons, but we must also not be ignorant of the real demonic influence that's in the world. So don't open yourself up to influence through sin. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. And the other way we see their arrogance is in the fact that they blaspheme about things that they don't understand. Verse 12 says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now, Peter here compares them to irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They're just operating on their natural desires, their own natural drives, and not their reason. So They're so arrogant that they're blaspheming the superhuman, but they're behaving as subhuman as animals behave. They claim to be wise, but they're fools. They are making confident assertions about stuff they don't understand. And Peter's going to say later in chapter 3, they're twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. In short, they're confident, but they're incompetent in the scriptures. The root of all rebellion is pride. Of course, this pride can show up in many different ways, I think of the women who claim to be pastors in direct rebellion to the clear teaching of Scripture. They assert themselves with confidence. It's so common for women to be pastors nowadays that most Christians don't even bat an eye at it anymore. There's one common thread Peter's teaching us here that, that is among false teachers. It's hubris, an exaggerated sense of their own self-confidence. They have confidence in themselves, but not in God in their word. They lack wisdom and humility. And then Peter highlights their fate once again, saying that they're going to be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. It's a play on words here. It's probably better to translate this, suffering harm as payment for the harm they've done. In other words, the false teachers are going to reap what they sow. They sow destructive heresies, and so they're going to reap destruction. If you sow sin in your life brothers and sisters, you will reap destruction. Now, there might be a delay 
but you can be sure that the harvest is coming. And we're going to see that more clearly in chapter 3 next week. Now, next Peter describes their sensuality. Verses 13 and 14. Sensuality means being devoted to or satisfying your own sinful desires, your own uh, indulging your own bodily appetites. He says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. These people are shameless. They do in the daytime what other people only dare to do in the dark. They're hedonists. They live for pleasure. He calls them blots and blemishes. You know how a stain can ruin a nice piece of clothing? Has anyone ever spilled on a nice piece of clothing and totally ruined it? Yeah, I have too. I feel like sometimes I could benefit from one of those bibs that has the little pouch you know, that catches all the, the stuff. So that's what Peter is saying. They're like that stain. They stain and defile the church. Rather than the pure clothing that she's meant to wear, the church is stained. Her reputation is reviled. Remember verse 2. They're the exact opposite of what Christians are supposed to be. Peter tells the church, be diligent to be found by God without spot or blemish. Chapter 3, verse 14. While they have a passion for pleasure, Christians are supposed to have a passion for purity, for holiness. They revel in their deceptions while they feast with you. And the early church, they had a feast. It was like a fellowship meal where they celebrated the Lord's Supper as a part of that. They called it the Love Feast, Jude 12. It was a regular part of their Christian fellowship where they celebrated what Christ had done for them to redeem them. But these false teachers were making a mockery of it. Their participation was a deception because they were continuing to indulge in their sin while they're supposed to be celebrating the very sacrifice that rescued them from that sin. So rather than a love feast, it was a lewd feast. Peter says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Every woman was seen as a possible conquest, an object to gratify their lust. Unlike Job, who made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at any girl, Job 31.1. Their eyes were also insatiable for sin. They were never stopped looking for ways to sin, to gratify their sinful desires, and they, un, uh, they entice unstable or unsteady souls. We'll come back to that in a bit. Hedonism is a great description of our culture today. The God of our day is pleasure. The goal of life is pursuing my personal happiness defined on my own terms, be it the pursuit of food, drink, entertainment, wealth, sex, or whatever else. Pornography is a rampant problem. The objectifying of women, looking with eyes full of adultery and lust. Of course, God designed us with the ability to enjoy things. He calls us to feast and and celebrate and rejoice. Joy and pleasure are not bad in themselves, The problem is pursuing pleasure as our ultimate goal or pursuing it in the wrong way, a way that contradicts God's design. So enjoy food, but don't be a glutton. Enjoy sex, but only in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. Does God want you to be happy? Yes, but understand your greatest joy is found in loving and obeying God. A message that tells you to find your joy and satisfaction in the things of this world or in disobedience to God is a false one. 
The third characteristic of the false teachers is their greed. This is another aspect of hedonism. Most people don't just want money. They want the pleasure, comforts, and security that money affords them. And we see their greed in verses 14 through 16. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So like an athlete who, who trains, putting in long hours and hard work to get skilled in their sport, these false teachers have put in time and effort to get skilled in, in greed and in exploiting people, verse 3. They, they've trained their hearts to be greedy, to be covetousness, to be covetous, searing their conscience so they're no longer guilty when they fleece the sheep. Their heart is motivated by personal gain. They're peddling whatever pays, whatever profits them. Harming God's people doesn't matter to them because their hearts have been trained in greed. And then Peter interjects and he says, accursed children. Children of wrath. You are under God's curse. Peter's disgusted by their sensuality and their greed. This is where we see, we're starting to see Peter's pastoral heart. He's angry that these people have infiltrated the church and are causing so much damage to God's people. He wants the flock to see these charlatans, these greedy preachers, for who they are and repudiate them. So he uses Balaam as an illustration. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was in it for the money. Now, Balak, the king of Moab, hired him to curse the Israelites so that he could defeat them and drive them out of the land, Numbers 22, 6. And at first, as you read the story, you think Balaam's going to do what the Lord wants, but you find out later that his heart is perverse. He really does intend to curse Israel for money. And because of this, the angel of the Lord comes and he blocks Balaam's path, verses 15 to 20. Now, he couldn't see the angel of the Lord with its sword drawn, but his donkey could, and it stopped three times. And all three times, Balaam, he strikes the donkey. And then God opens the donkey's mouth, and it rebukes him. And he opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord standing there. And then God says, I came out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. If the donkey hadn't turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you and let her live. Verse 32 to 33, a dumb donkey had greater spiritual insight than the prophet. That's the irony. It's paralleled in the irrational and arrogant teachers who thought they were so smart, but they were ignorant. They didn't know what they're talking about, and they can't see it. Now, we also learn in Numbers that the sexual immorality of Israel at Baal of Peor was because of Balaam's advice, Numbers 31, 16, and, and 25, 1 through 3. And this is picked up as an example in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14. The Lord warns the church in Pergamum. He says, you are listening to people who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. That opened them up to the same judgment. 
So Balaam's used as a negative example in the Bible in two ways. First, for his greed, being willing to curse Israel for profit. And second, for his influence to entice Israel into sexual immorality, into idolatry. And for that treachery, Balaam is destroyed. Number one's Numbers 31.8. So he's just the perfect picture of these teachers. Like Balaam, these false teachers are greedy. They're leading people to forsake God and his way and to go the way of the flesh. Any teacher that is driven by greed or promotes sensuality is following Balaam's way and will suffer Balaam's end. Judgment awaits. And so disciples should repudiate their teaching because they know where following it leads. They should reject it as untrue, refute it, and have nothing to do with it. Now, it's impossible to read this part of our text today and not think of those who preach the word of faith prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It teaches that Jesus came to make us happy and healthy and wealthy. They absolutize God's blessing and they either downplay or ignore passages about God, about suffering. And you got to pay to play. You got to give if you want your miracle. And as you wait for your miracle, you got to still give so you can stay under the anointed one, right? All the while, the preachers get rich living in mansions, driving luxury cars, wearing luxury clothes, eating luxury food. They're following the way of Balaam, preaching for profit and exploiting God's people with hearts trained in greed. And yet so many people, Christian and non-Christian, listen to them. Costi Hinn, the nephew of the famous prosperity preacher, Benny Hinn, he worked with his uncle for years. He left that movement, he left that theology. He says this, He says, the prosperity gospel is arguably the most hateful and abusive kind of false teaching plaguing the church today. Now, if you want stories of this, watch the documentary American Gospel or go read Costi's book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Now, it's easy, I think, to pick on those who preach the prosperity, uh, the health, wealth gospel, and there are dozens of them out there. It's easy to to point that out and then say to ourselves, I'm so glad I'm not like that. We might not assume that our faith is going to lead us to health and wealth, but we might still approach God with the same consumerist mentality. Hey, what's in it for me? What's in it for me, God? Let me encourage you this morning to ask the Lord to expose ways that you might have adopted this way of thinking about faith, about God, and not even have realized it. Don't be too quick to cast aside the possibility that you have not been influenced by the God mammon, that of materialism and prosperity. Those who preach sensuality, who call people, just, just, just God accepts you the way you are, right? It's a cheap grace gospel. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So these false teachers have three characteristics then, arrogance, sensuality, and greed, and they lead, it leads them into all kinds of different sins. And now Peter is going to shift from their character to the consequences, the destructive impact. The destructive consequences of the false teacher then is point two. It's corruption and condemnation. Peter hits the false teachers hard because 
their false gospel is leading people astray toward destruction. Many will follow them, verse 2. Verse 13 says they entice unsteady souls. They lead others on this same path that they're on. They entice them. They, they lure them. It's like a, like a fisherman using bait to lure and hook a fish. These false teachers entice the unsteady. That's why Peter wants Christians to be firmly established in the truth, chapter 1, verse 12. It's those who are not firmly grounded in the truth who these people entice. Now, if you're fishing and you see a guy who's catching fish and you're not catching fish, one of the things that you want to ask that person and probably one of the first things you will ask them is, hey, what are you using for bait What are you using to catch them? Good question, right? These people have bait that they're using to entice people. What's the bait? How are they doing it? Peter mentions three ways. First, with boastful and empty words. These false teachers are going to sound really good, but their words are hollow and deceptive. They overpromise and deliver little or nothing. In their arrogance, they make loud boasts of folly. Being, being assertive and confident made other people think that these people knew what they're talking about. Those who don't know their Bibles are often susceptible to that kind of assertive confidence. In verse 17, Peter uses a couple of vivid word pictures to describe how their words are empty and lifeless. First, he calls them waterless springs. In the desert, in the arid climate of the Middle East, Water is life. A spring is a refuge for thirsty travelers. And for someone in need, imagine, imagine the frustration of coming to a spring and you find instead of water, it's dry, it's empty. There's no water in it. And there's, there's nothing like a cold drink of water, right? Especially when you're preaching and you're thirsty. Mm. That is good. That is so refreshing. Is anyone else thirsty in the room? Raise your hand. Thirsty. Yeah. Here, I got another bottle for you. Mm. Imagine you are desperate for this. You are desperate for water. And when you get to the, the spring, all you find is sand, dirt. That's what these teachers are like. They're they're promising water, the water that you need to live, but when you come to the spring, it's dry. They leave thirsty souls dry and needy. Their teaching doesn't give life, it robs it. Water is often used in the Bible as a picture of how God's truth sustains life. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death, Proverbs 13, 14. Or think of Jeremiah 2, 13. God says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Rather than offering people Christ, the fountain of living water, they're telling them, satisfy your thirst with sensuality, with idolatry, with with, uh, idols, these are broken cisterns, but, but it looks promising. 
It looks good. The, the well, the spring from a distance, it looks good. It looks like it's going to satisfy. It looks like it's going to be good for you. It looks like it's going to be pleasing. That's the bait. That's the lure. But it's hollow. It's deceptive and dangerous. It's, it's devastating to disciples who desperately need the life-giving water of God's word, the life-giving water of Jesus Christ, and they don't get it. It's deceptive and dangerous. That makes me think of two false teachings that are opposites in our own day, the false gospel of works salvation, and on the other hand, cheap grace salvation. The one is promising life through, through good works, which is empty. We cannot work our way to heaven. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace to be received by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Cheap grace, on the other hand, promises salvation without the need to follow Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. They say, oh yeah, sure you've sinned. I understand that, but now everything is forgiven. You don't have to change. God loves you the way you are. He accepts you the way you are. And people just go on living in their sins. People cling to their worldly life with the assurance that don't worry, God's grace covers that. That's cheap grace. Luther warned against any preaching of the gospel that makes people rest secure in ungodly living. This is what the false teachers are doing. The message of cheap grace is just as devastating and damning as the message of works salvation. They both lead to ruin. And once again, Peter returns to, the, to judgment. Man, he is like a, a broken record in chapter 2. Destruction, destruction, danger, danger, doom. He keeps coming back to it again and again and again. The gloom of utter darkness is reserved for those who spread error and those who follow it. So the first way that they lure us is with hollow and deceptive words, with empty words that promise life but can't deliver. The second way is by appealing to people's sensual passions. The words were not just hollow, they're unholy. They lead people into truth, or not to truth, but to error, not to righteousness, but to sin, not to Christ, but away from Christ. They're arguing that there wouldn't be a judgment, and if there's no judgment, then it doesn't matter how you live, right? That throws the door wide open to immorality. In short, they're encouraging people to do whatever feels good, which is like our own day. Now, who do they target? They target the unstable, verse 13. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, verse 18. So this is those who are on the edge of faith or those who are not yet grounded in their faith. And so we can see how youth and children are targets for indoctrination because they're impressionable. They have not yet been grounded in the truth. So anchor your kids in the truth. Anchor yourself in the truth. False teachers entice people by sensual passions. You guys remember two weeks ago I used the illustration of the young man who, who was struggling with homosexuality and he found teachers online who said homosexuality is okay. They strengthened him in his sin and they hardened him to the truth. It's easy now to find churches that support LGBTQ plus affirming people. Affirming them. Affirming them in that. Not calling them to change. That God accepts you the way you are. Another example that I read in an article this week, it was about a gathering called Sacred. I want you to mark the name, called Sacred. 
It's a group of 450 clergy and faith advocates that met to discuss the right to abortion. You heard me right. They called it sacred. They gathered together to discuss the right to abortion. The lead organizer, Reverend Angela Williams of the Presbyterian USA Church, expressed her gratitude, her gratitude for being able to help undo the stigma around abortion, saying, we've let the dominant narrative be based on some readings of Bible verses, and that doesn't represent real people, real lives, real faith. In other words, it's not what the Bible says, it's what my experience says is what my feelings say that really matters. Accursed children. Or as Jesus would say, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And we could add to this the teaching of moral relativism, subjectivism, emotionalism that plagues the church. There's no absolute truth, but what really matters is my subjective feelings. Whatever makes me feel good is good, and no one can tell me otherwise. So they entice with high-sounding but hollow words. They entice with sensual passions, unholy words. And third, they entice by proclaiming freedom but they really enslave to corruption. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. The context suggests here that it's, it's about freedom from, from moral constraints and judgment. They, they're saying, hey, our teaching is the door to freedom. What it really is, is a doorway to a cage. These Teachers tell people, your old way of life, that's not really wrong. There's not going to be a judgment for you. And so these people go back to their error and they get captured again in bondage to sin. Hey, you're free. You're free. Free from judgment because of God's grace. You're free. Do as you please. Of course, there is freedom in Christ. But it's not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. Amen? Amen. There's a warning here for all of us not to become enslaved to sin, not to go back, but to walk in true freedom from sin in obedience to Christ. So in their quest for self-expression, they become enslaved to self. The West is being consumed by the idolatry of self where every individual is free to seek their own pleasure in whatever way they think best. The Puritans wanted to use freedom to pursue virtue as God defines it in the Bible. Now people want to use freedom to pursue their own desires and well-being as they define it. This philosophy, this religious philosophy that has seeped into the church, it's, it's been called moralistic therapeutic deism. It can be summed up like this. God exists and all he wants for you is to be nice, fair, and happy. He's not too concerned about what you do, but he's there if you need him. Christian Smith, in the book Soul Searching, he says moralistic therapeutic deism consists of these beliefs. One, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Good. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. In other words, there's nothing special about the Bible. Number three, 
The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is one of the most widespread false gospels in America. All God wants for you is to be nice and fair and happy. Oh yeah, and he wants you to feel good about yourself. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the greatest sin in our culture, the greatest sin in our culture is it's getting in the way of someone's ability to find their own happiness in the way that they desire. Who are you to judge? Who are you to say that you can't switch your gender? God wants me to be happy. People are tolerant of everybody <laughs> except those who dare to oppose their lifestyle. What Isaiah says is true. Anyone who takes a stand for truth becomes a prey. That's where we are. Sadly, this moralistic therapeutic deism has been absorbed by a lot of conservative Christians, even though we don't realize it. It's a sort of soft prosperity gospel. This is why so few Christians today are prepared to suffer for their faith, because this philosophy denies suffering as a matter of first principles. The unstated assumption in American Christianity seems to be that we can live for Jesus and be happy and have everything that we want and we shouldn't have to suffer for our faith. We're unwilling to suffer because our primary goal is happiness rather than God's honor. This is clear because given the choice between honoring God and suffering for it and remaining silent but staying happy, we have largely chosen to stay silent and remain happy. And we're all guilty of it. Amen, somebody? Since the Enlightenment, freedom has come to be defined as being free to do what you want and decide for yourself what's right and wrong. But that kind of freedom is an illusion. Everybody is subject to somebody or something. The false teachers, they're not really free. All they've done is exchanged one master for another. So the question is not whether or not you and I are going to serve somebody or something. The question is, which master is the better master? And many people are going to say, serving myself is better because that way I get to satisfy the pleasures of my sin. I get to have you know, money, power, sex, and everything else. But Christ is far better for two reasons. One, there's terrible consequences for rejecting Jesus. Peter is clear in this chapter again and again and again. It's judgment, condemnation, suffering, the gloom of darkness. He, he, he uses the strongest and most vivid language he can to warn people against that path. And second, serving Jesus is far better because there is eternal blessing and real joy, real satisfaction now and forever. Finally, Peter, he explains the danger, the real possibility of destruction. Look at verses 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire." It's a little difficult to know exactly who verses 22 to 20, 20 to 22 are addressing. Is it the false teachers or is it the people who follows them? And I don't think we have to make a sharp distinction. I think it's primarily directed at false teachers, but it includes anyone who follows in their path. 
this, this, these verses are a warning that apostasy is dangerous because if you turn away from Christ, you might not ever be able to return. Those who reject the truth of Christ will be less inclined to consider the claims of Christ and the gospel in the future. And so the last state really does become worse than the first. Now, is Peter teaching here that genuine Christians can lose their salvation? No. Remember, God enables Christians to persevere in the faith. And Peter teaches this in both of his letters. He's not contradicting himself. He's not saying in one place you can't lose your salvation and in another place that you can't. Okay? In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, God guards you through faith for this salvation. He keeps heaven for you. And in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, God gives you everything that you need for life and godliness. Yet, you still have to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. We've been talking about this. It's about the perseverance of the saints. Those who persevere to the end will be saved, and God will enable true believers to persevere to the end. So Peter's not contradicting himself. He's using descriptive language here to talk about people who appeared to be Christians. They, they heard the gospel. They professed to believe. They had some knowledge of the Lord and Savior. They went to worship. They took the Lord's Supper. We, we've seen all these things. And they knew perfectly well that Jesus demands of his disciples, follow me. And yet, and yet, they rejected Christ's lordship. They abandoned the right way. They pursued sensuality. They pursued greed. Their lack of perseverance in the faith is the evidence that they're not truly Christian. And this final illustration of the pig and the dogs, the dogs and the pigs, shows that those who fell away had never really changed their nature. They were still dogs and pigs on the inside. They cleaned themselves up a little bit on the outside, but they were never cleansed inside, which is why they turned back. And dogs and pigs were both considered unclean at the time and viewed negatively. They, dogs were not man's best friend. <laughs> right? Like they were more like the dogs that we saw in El Salvador when we were on a mission trip. Just these skinny, mangy, dirty, filthy scavengers running around, right? Nasty little creatures. That's how they saw them. Now, if you have a dog, you maybe know this by experience, but a dog will throw up and then go back to lick up their own vomit, I saw pictures of that. I was like, I should have a picture of that. And then I was like, nope. Nope. I'm going to throw up. No pictures for this. You're welcome. You are welcome. Peter is using this vivid description to describe these people. It's disgusting picture of people who go back to the corruption of the world. It shows their true nature. And he's warning us not to follow that path because it's a steep and slippery slope. Maybe it's helpful for you to think of it as a slope that's covered in vomit and filth, mud. And once you slide down that, it's dangerous because you may never recover. See, the warning passages in the New Testament are real warnings. You have to understand, these are real warnings. We can't take our salvation for granted. We don't get to use grace as a pretext for sin. 
We have to persevere in, in faith until the end. So this is a real warning to the wavering, to the backsliding, to those who are coming under the influence of false teaching, to those who are not following Christ, not living for him, but living in sin. And like any warning, the purpose of the warning is so that people will avoid the danger. That's why you give a warning. In this case, the warning is, do not turn back from Christ, but continue to follow Christ. Now, there, there are so many waterless springs in our day, so many false teachings. I've only touched, touched on some and alluded to others. Here's a list Here's a list that I, of, of, of ones I think the church is facing right now. You might add others. One that I didn't mention that I think is important is social justice and critical theory. I talk about that in the sermon, Engaging Critical Theory with God's Holy Word. A couple of books that you can read to get equipped on that that I would recommend are Fault Lines by Vodi Bakum and Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott David Allen. They're both great books, and we typically have them on our resource table. I've got some more books coming next week. I want to adapt something from Scott David Allen's book. When a non-biblical worldview becomes widely accepted in the culture, it forces the church to respond. We have to do something. Now, historically, the church has responded in one of three ways, and I've adapted his three ways. The first way is to conform to it. We can, we can adopt the unbiblical worldview and therefore abandon core biblical truth to whatever degree. The second is we can ignore it do nothing about it. Preach the church or preach the truth in our holy huddle, but not really equip believers to handle these ideologies from a biblical worldview. The result of one and two is the same. The false teaching is allowed to continue to spread. The third response that the church can do is to resist it, standing firm in the truth and refuting error. And that is going to lead us to disengage from the world in some ways, like considering pulling our kids from public school. But it'll, consider, it'll, it'll force us to engage in other ways, getting more involved in making disciples, in advancing the gospel, spreading the kingdom, so that we can have all of Christ in all of life, both personally and publicly. Peter and the apostles resisted the pressure to compromise truth. They're determined to defend it at all costs. So must we. The truth of the gospel and God's word has to be preserved and passed on. That's not going to be easy. It is going to be costly to live the truth, costly to defend the truth in a world of lies and false doctrines and false ideologies that we are swimming in. It's going to be costly, but we must do it, and we must teach our children how to do it. And we want to help you to that end, not just with preaching. We have Sunday school, we're going through systematic theology, we get stand and college fellowship and equip groups, and we've got books on the resource table that are deeply discounted. That's because we want you to read good books. And don't forget the Worldview Conference is coming up next weekend. Now, brothers and sisters, let's hold fast to the truth by faith and repudiate, reject false teaching for our good and for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for the truth because it's such a great blessing.
And God, I just pray these things for us as a church and for each one of us as individuals and for our families. God, would you help us to be grounded in the truth? God, would you expose just any, any lies that we are believing, any false teaching that we have adopted in our own lives? Bring it to mind, God, as we read your word. I pray that we would abandon those, those, those things and hold fast to what is good. God, we want to be faithful to you. Would you do that here in our in our lives, in our families, in our church. God, we ask for your help to that end. And all God's people said, amen, amen.